don't know about y'all, but I think they just did a really good job leading that. If they could get a better drummer, they'd be all right. Um, I've had a kind of busy week. Haven't been traveling a whole lot. Went to a show yesterday, worth a gate at the basketball game Friday, and just some odd and end stuff, getting ready for this raffle that uh, your kids have probably been harassing you about for tickets. Except for Molly, who turned hers back in. Calling you out from up here. Um, even though it's been kind of busy, Wednesday night I spoke for the youth. So uh, I figured out that the days that I'm preaching on Sunday, the youth can just be my guinea pigs. And I can see if it works for them and they kind of seem like they get it. I'm like, all right, I'll just do the same thing again Sunday. It will be good. I'm going to talk a little bit different today. Um, Wednesday night I shared, um, I shared about Brian Edwards, our friendship, how we went from our nemesis as kids, pushing down the slide and uh, getting in fights in the playground elementary school to being best friends and went camping last summer. And it's hard to... Uh, share some Brian stories without sharing some Chris stories. So today, I'm going to share a few Chris stories in a little bit. And my parents are already going, oh no, what's he going to say? And Meredith is too. Um, but first of all, we've kind of been on a progression with uh, Tyler getting up here and sharing his story a few weeks ago. Um, the direction that Mark has taken us in Romans, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, about being a living sacrifice, what it means to be in relationship with God continuously, not just having this church thing on Sunday, and then the rest of our week looking completely different. It was come back Sunday to put on our church face and sit here and check off our good deed for the week. Um, that's not the way He wants it. He wants us to be a living sacrifice where every breath we take, we're in fellowship with Him. Not that we live perfectly, but that's what we're striving for is, is a relationship with Him that is perfect, that we can be made perfect through Him. So we have this, um, last time I spoke, I talked about the Garden of Eden and the grace that happened when Jesus came. So Jesus came to redeem what was broken, to redeem what man had broken. So you, you get this picture in the garden, and uh, Vonda, I want to thank you from up here, Vonda brought me this huge map, and I even thought about bringing it up here today, but I was afraid y'all wouldn't be able to see the, it's got so much writing on it, but it's a timeline um, from, the, from the Bible, and it, it shows um, the lineage of different people, and it shows Israel being restored in, the, in 1948, <laughs> 7, 48, somewhere in there. And uh, you get to see God's promises being kept the whole way through. So God created this world. Last time I spoke right before Christmas, um, that's kind of where we went. God created us to live eternally with Him. And that's what the garden looked like. There was no sickness. There was no disease. Um, there was no pain. It was a perfect place where we had perfect relationship with God. And He walked with us. And He gave us jobs. He gave us dominion over the animals. He said, have all this and name it. And He only gave Him one rule. And side note for you parents out there, um, this is some advice I got when I became a parent. Um, Adam and Eve had one parent, and James said this last week, and it still stuck with me, and I've heard it a few years back. They had one parent, and he was perfect, and he was God, and they still messed up. So don't beat yourselves up when your kids mess up. That doesn't give you kids an excuse <laughs> to mess up, though, even though we all do. So you get this perfection in the garden that God made. This is how He created it, to have this perfect place. It was heaven on earth. The Garden of Eden was heaven. We were with God, and He let us do all these things. There's no shame, there's no pain, there's no heartache. There's just perfection in relationship with Him. And then we did the one thing that He asked us not to do, and that broke that relationship, broke that trust, broke that faith, and then there was punishment for that. And you see this progression through the Old Testament of man trying to make himself holy enough, trying to make himself right enough to be before God. If you're going to go to a tabernacle, you had to make sure you were clean, that you were repentant, you had to bring your sacrifice. 
like Mark was sharing the past few weeks, you bring your best goat, you bring your best steer, anything that was your best thing that you could kill that would take a little bit away from what you had, you would bring that and you lay that on the altar before God to bring Him your best, to make yourself holy enough to be in His presence. And uh, it still didn't work. So we're trying and trying to do all these things and we can never be holy enough because we continue to mess up. We continue to live for ourselves. So God stepped down, became a man, and we saw that as we shared through Christmas about He became one of us so that He could redeem us by being a man. God couldn't do it. God didn't break the relationship. Man did. So God humbled Himself, come down from, from His kingdom to become a man so that He could die in our place so it was a sacrifice for us all. So He came to be the steer. He came to be the goat for every one of us. So there's no more sacrifices of actually killing things to make yourself holy through God. There's just accepting the grace that's been given to you. And grace is this word that we use a lot in church. And I want to hang on grace for just a minute. Um, it's really easy to talk about the grace that God gives us. And we've done that for the past few weeks about, you know, we know we're not good enough, but if we have a relationship with Him, we can be. So when we accept the grace that He's given us, we're forgiven of all of our sins. But what do we do with that? That's totally opposite of anything that the world um, has. So I'm going to go real quick. You guys don't have to turn there, but I'm going to Romans. I, wasn't, I didn't even have this in my notes. I'm going to go to it because I just thought of it. Romans chapter 12. As I slowly turn there. I lose the uh, rushed Bible, uh, Bible drills we used to do. So Romans chapter 12, verse 1, is where Mark was, was hanging out the past few weeks. But if you go to verse 2, it says, Do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that the testing, in the test, by the testing you, might, you may discern what is will, was the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I want to do that one more time without fumbling through it so bad. Do not be conformed to this world. What does that mean? This world offers a lot of things, and uh, if we react the way the world reacts to things, we will always ignore grace, we will always ignore forgiveness, and we'll always kind of miss the purpose of being Christians. Um, Jesus came to save us, and then He gave us a mission when He left to go and continue to share the good news of Him that He has came to save us. And a lot of times once we're saved, we get in this bad habit, myself included, that, um, okay, I know God now, I have it all together, um, I have my free ticket to heaven card. And I'm good to go. And then we get really judgmental on the outside of the church. We start looking around at the things. We watch the news. And you see all the things that people do. Um, the shootings and the, uh, just the evilness in the world. You see all that stuff. And it's really easy to uh, turn the grace part off of that and just focus on the victims of those things. And that, I think we should focus on the victims of those, those tragedies. But when we focus on the ones that are doing that, um, we look at... Look at the thing behind the thing. Look at the action that they did. But then there's a reason. Obviously something's going on wrong in their life to drive them to that. And they need grace too. They need forgiveness too. Even though a lot of times it's really hard to see that. All we want is the punishment part of it. We want them to pay the price. And there is, there's justice in that. And grace sometimes takes away from the justice that, that they deserve. It gives them something that they don't deserve. So grace is really hard for us to comprehend because that's not the way we function. But if we are going to no longer conform to the world and be transformed by the renewal of our minds. We have to continuously seek God and accept in the grace that He's given us. Because for every person that's done wrong to you, I can, I'm sure you, even if you have some secret ones that no one knows about, there's some wrongs that you've done to someone else. So when we start viewing the grace that's redeemed us, 
as grace that's redeeming all, change our mindset. So we're not going to look like the world anymore. We're not going to want that justice for them. Justice through grace. Not that we want to forgive someone who doesn't want forgiveness or is not repentive. There's definitely a, not any justice or grace in that. And we're going to see that in a little bit too as we read and get normal uh, or plan verse, I'll call it. So uh, that being said, we're very relationship-based. Even if you look at the Trinity before the creation of the world, um, really inter interesting how Genesis words it, that, that God created us in their image, not just His image, but in their image. And I think, and I think that a lot of theologists smarter than me would agree that that's referencing the Trinity, that it's always been in place. There's always been a Father, a Son, and the Holy Spirit. God's always operated in those three ways, um, even before the beginning of the world. So even in Himself, there's relationship. It's, just not, it's not just singular. He's designed to be in relationship with Himself. And He designs us for relationship. The reason we were created and put in the garden to begin with was for relationship with Him. And the only way we can restore the brokenness of that is to seek a relationship with Him. So think right now about the strongest relationships in your life. You have, um, as a child, you know, your parents or your best friends. They're the only world that you know. And the relationship there, some people never get that. And they never really understand that because they don't have that parent relationship. But we have friends, we have grandparents, we have other people that love us and take us in. People that aren't even blood, there's still relationships there um, that we form. And everything in our lives is based around a relationship. We're gathered here today because of relationships that we have with other people in this room. And hopefully the relationship that we have with God. Um, school organizations. The only way a school organization is going to be, be successful is if there's re relationships amongst the students in there. No one wants to be part of anything where they feel like they're not included, where they feel like they don't have a place there, where they feel like they have no friends there, no one on their side. They're not going to want, want to be part of that. It's the only way anything's going to grow and prosper is through relationships. And uh, we see that demonstration through Christ. So what, if, if we were designed for relationship, what happens when those relationships are broken? How do we feel? And you guys can answer too. I don't have to be the only one talking up here. How do you feel when those relationships are broken? Hurt. You're hurt, yeah. It, I mean, it doesn't feel right. You feel like something, some part of you is missing when you're not in a relationship that was so strong to begin with. And you can name off a list of anything. Siblings, parents, um, any relatives for that matter. Um, childhood friends, as you grow up and, and drift apart and you think back on memories that you had and you wonder whatever really happened there. And sometimes it's just distance between and sometimes there are some things that led up to that relationship not being there. But we know that when we get in that place, it does hurt. It doesn't feel right. Because that's not how we were created. We were not designed to not be in relationship with people. And when we, we lose those relationships, whether it's our fault or their fault or nobody's fault, we hurt. And that's the easiest way to put it. There's a lot of pain in that. And the pain comes from that, that brokenness not being God's will. God did not design us to be broken. He designed us to be whole. He designed us for relationships. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Chris for a minute. I had a childhood friend, have a, a friend still, um, named Chris Whitley. And I shared with the youth last week about Brian and how he pushed me down the slide a few times when we were kids. And I tried to stick up for one of our friends in the playground one time and he punched me in the face. And uh, you see this, how could these kids ever be friends? Well, when we got detention from that, he had to call me, by the way. I didn't tell the kids this. Um, he had to call me that night and apologize for what he did. His mom made him. So I, thought, I was like... You could tell he was like his voice was shaking. He just got through getting spanked or whatever. So um, that was pretty cool. But we see this as we were started talking. We had the same last name, and kids would always wonder if we were cousins or friends or whatever. 
And Wednesday night, these kids remember, but you saw the progression of us just kind of exploring that through our punishment, getting to know each other a little bit because we were forced to be in the same room in detention. And uh, we grew a relationship from that. And we're still friends. So Chris, he was Grant. I grew up in Hugo. Grant is to Hugo what Lane and Harmony would be to Atoka. It's a feeder school. Um, hadn't always been that way, but when I was in school, you went through eighth grade and you got to decide whether he's going to Fort Towson, Hugo, Soper, Boswell, if you wanted to keep driving a little further. But you could pick what school you wanted to go to. The majority of the kids came to Hugo. That was our county seat. That was a big school. We had a football program. Very similar situation um, to what we have here in Atoka. So Chris um, was really, really smart in his class. I didn't really know him before our freshman year. But our freshman year of high school, we both get stuck in the same ag class together. And you guys can probably already predict well, I'm an ag teacher from some of this stuff I'm going to tell you. But uh, he grew up in Grant. If you know any of the demographics at Grant, um, white kids there are kind of a minority. So he had a South Pole. I don't know if you guys remember South Pole coats. Um, you know, the big baggy Jinko jeans. He was, he was a cool kid at Grant. He comes to Hugo. He's in an ag class, and he looks so out of place. And his dad harvests pecans for a living. Um, so he's a country kid. He drives tractors when he's not in school. But he didn't want that. He, he wanted to... You know, be like all other kids at school. He played basketball. He was a heavy, shorter kid. Um, he could shoot like crazy, but he had no ball control and he wasn't fast. So they just put him up on the three-point line and wait, give him the opportunity because he can make them. He was a good ball player. Well, he gets an ag, and he uh, decides the first day. He looks around the class. He's like, I don't want to be here. None of my friends from Grant are here. I'm getting out. So he goes to the counselor and tries to get out of ag, and she won't let him. She said, No, the schedule's set. I don't have anywhere to put you. You're just gonna have to deal with it at least for this semester. So through that, our ag teacher, Mr. Morphus, I saw him yesterday, um, he has done a lot of different stuff. We started showing animals. I'd already shown animals a few years before this. Chris kind of got interested in that because he figured he could get out of school more if he showed an animal. Um, we had some contest teams. We were both on the forestry judging team. And through high school, um, we were kind of inseparable. I was about three or four months ahead of him, and, or older than him. So I started driving first. I'd take him places in my truck, drive him around. And then when he got his license, it was kind of short-lived because he saved up his money and bought this little Nissan pickup, and he wrecked it within the, a week of having it. So he was back to riding the bus or riding with some friends. So we were together all the time. We did all the FFA stuff together that we could, got out of school every chance we got, and we both worked at the same Mexican restaurant. We both worked at Sonic together. Uh, Meredith worked at Sonic with us too. Um, yes, Sonic and uh, Mexican <laughs> restaurants. So we worked there. Our friendship was, was really strong. When we went to college, he decided he was going to be a veterinarian. He loved animals. And he's not wearing the South Pole stuff anymore. He's kind of um, come around to the ag side of things. He's wearing boots every once in a while and that kind of thing. So our freshman year of college, I was going to be a communication major, um, maybe in radio broadcasting, something with, to do with music. I've always wanted to, to do that. So I went to Southeastern, and I realized real quick that there was not a lot of money in that, not that there's any more in teaching. But the things that, but the things that you had to do to... Uh, to the class he had to take was all about classical music, and, and I did not want anything to do with that. So I'm thinking about other things that I can do. We're back home from school one weekend, and we both worked. I commuted back and forth to Durant, and he was at Wilberton. So on the weekends, he'd come home, and he'd wash dishes or whatever the restaurant just to make a little extra money. And he said, man, we like we liked FFA so much, we should both just be ag teachers. And I was like, man, that's not a terrible idea. So we're sitting there, and we're thinking about you know, ways that we can make that happen. He's already going down an ag route. I've already spent a year in school, but it's basically gen ed, so I haven't really wasted any time. So we take our ag teacher out to eat, our former ag teacher, and he tries to get us every way he can to not make us do this. He's like, 
I promise it may look fun on the outside, but there's a lot more to it. You guys really need to think about this, but we were set. All we saw was livestock shows and getting out of school. It was awesome. So we uh, both enrolled in Eastern. Me and Meredith have been dating about three years at this point. We're commuting back and forth to college together. This is the first time in my life that I'm moving away from home. I'm 19. Moving away from home, out of my parents' house. Been there my whole life. And uh, I'm going to be away from Meredith because she's staying at Southeastern. So my world that I've kind of set up these past 19 years and then three with Meredith is all about to um, be different. And we made it through, obviously. We're married and have two kids now. But when I first moved to Eastern, the first couple days I was up there, I thought, what, what am I doing up here? I got my girlfriend going to a whole different school. Um, I don't know anybody but Chris here. He has all these friends. He's already been there a year. So what am I going to do? Well, the first Wednesday of school, me, me and Chris have a really good friendship. A little side note about Chris. Um, Chris never has met his dad, his own dad, but he's always had a stepdad up to this point um, from the time he was five, six years old that his mom married. Um, they had some kids, and he had kind of taken Chris in. So the only dad that he knew, his name was Mike, and Chris called him Mike, but Mike was Chris's dad. Mike was an alcoholic. He was never abusive to Chris or anything, but any time you were over there, he was drinking something, several somethings. And uh, the situation with his health was not very good at this point. So Chris has a lot of stuff going on at home. His you know, mom doing that. He's got younger brothers that are still in school. So he's trying to help them out as much as he can. They don't have a whole lot of income. So he's doing everything for money. But when he has downtime, Chris liked to get a little crazy. So the first Wednesday of college, Chris invited me to go out and hang out with some friends that uh, he had met the year before. It was like a back-to-school party. They were going to have a dance that night at Eastern. And I said, yeah, I'll go meet some people. So we go and hang out, and Chris starts drinking. There are people have, I mean, this is college people. Um, do not do these things, kids. Um, Chris starts drinking, and Chris didn't know when to stop. So I, I drove us there. I didn't have anything to drink that night. I was responsible. And Chris gets back in the truck with me, and in my mind, we're going to go back home. This is still early. This is like 9.30, and Chris has had too much to drink. So I'm pretty upset with him. You know, I'm, I'm there to meet some people. Um, I'm away from home. And it's all cut short because Chris couldn't act like he was 19 years old. So we, or maybe he did act like he's 19 years old and I was one not. So we get in the pickup, we drive back to college, and I said, okay, let's go to the room. And I'm kind of having to hold him up. We're walking across this parking lot. And he said, no, I'm going to the dance. He hears music down the hill. There's a dance on campus, back to school dance. And I said, you don't need to go to the dance. You're just going to get in trouble. Let's go to the room. And uh, couldn't change his mind. So I said, fine, do whatever you want. And I went to bed. I went to the room. And uh, I called Meredith. Um, I don't know if I called my parents or not. I'm sure I didn't at this point. <laughs> but I went to bed. I didn't know what was going to happen to Chris, but he was a big boy. He could take care of himself. So a few hours later, I get woke up to kind of a, I don't know if I can make the sound, but a key scratching around the door trying to find the keyhole. And I'm like, okay, he's back in the room. Well, I go open the door because he's having trouble. And behind him is the campus police. And he says, lay him down, give him this in the morning. It's a citation and tell him that he needs to come talk to the dean in the morning. Well, something I haven't told you yet, Chris got us set up. This is about a week before school started. He is the resident assistant of Johnston Hall at Eastern Oklahoma State College. If you know anything about Eastern, there are not a lot of dorm opportunities that are pleasant. Um, if you're in Miller Hall, it was very old, outdated. Um, showers kind of backed up. You all shared a community shower. If you're in Salmon Hall, it's even worse. 
the name Salmon Hall should tell you how bad Salmon Hall was. Um, the showers are not only backup, they were constantly, the, the bathrooms were flooded. They were trying to get kids out because it had already been um, condemned. <laughs> and they were trying to get kids not having to stay in there. Johnson Hall, the Choctaw Nation, had poured quite a bit of money into renovating it. So it used to be the old one, and they had they fixed it up. So the RA got his own room with its own bathroom and got to pick his roommate. Chris had connections, so I had my own bathroom. I didn't have to worry about sharing anything. Um, I, was, I was happy. Me and Dad made a cabinet to go between our beds. We had twin beds in the room, and it was tall enough. We had some pantry space, had a nightstand on each side, had a place to slide a mini fridge and a microwave. We were set up. We could buy groceries. Everything we needed was there. We had a, he had a flat screen TV. He had a PlayStation 2 at the time, you kids. <laughs> That's pretty impressive stuff. And uh, I think there's a four now, maybe, or five coming out. So um, we had it set up, and that lasted about four days. The next morning, I got Chris up, and he's all groggy. And I said, hey, you got in trouble last night. You need to go down and talk to the dean. And he's you know, coming to, and he's feeling remorseful and uh, kind of trying to get in the swing of things. He gets up, and he goes and visits with her. Well, while he's gone, I'm sitting in the room, kind of getting ready for class. And a note comes under our door. And the dean had already been up that morning and typed a letter for Chris, but he missed it. So I got to read the letter. And the letter, summarizing up here, explained that the new RA had already been appointed. This was like 8.30 in the morning. He had lost his RA privileges because that was part of the deal. If you're going to be an RA, you're supposed to be the responsible on the floor making sure kids didn't do what Chris did. And obviously they couldn't have him um, with what he had done the night before being the RA. So the new RA would get to choose their roommate, and him and his roommate would have to find a new place to go. So I'm reading this, and I'm pretty upset, because we just you know, built this cabinet thing. We're in this room. And everything that we've set up, as bad as it was being away from home the first time, being away from my girlfriend the first time, it's like, this is unbelievable. That I come up here because of him, it's his idea, we're going to do this ag teaching deal. And then he does this the first Wednesday of school. So I'm going to have to find somewhere to go. So I go talk to the dean. He goes and talks to the dean. We go together. And our only option is Salmon Hall. Miller Hall is full. So we go over there, and I'm looking around. I'm like, I can't do this. I can't stay in this room. So I had heard from some friends that the BCM would lodge some kids, and there was no one living there at the time, Baptist Collegiate Ministries, um, BSU, for people that were in college a while back, um, even longer than me. So I go over, and Lance Burnett is the director at the BCM. I explain to him the situation that happened, explain to him that there's nowhere for us to go except there. I didn't do anything wrong. I'm you know, giving this thing, like explaining myself. Um, it was Chris, it was my roommate. He got us both kicked out. Now we both, you know, and he's like, well, if it was just you wanting a room, because Chris came with me, I was helping Chris out. If it was just you wanting a room, it would be probably fine. I could call some people. But with him and the situation, I'm going to have to contact the higher-ups, whoever the higher-ups are at a BCM, I thought he was a director, and uh, figure out what we're going to do. So he told us to come back Monday. This is like a Friday morning. So we come back Monday. Me and Chris had plenty of time to sit and talk, and he was, he was pretty broken about it. Um, knew he had messed up, knew he disappointed me. He was even more scared that my parents had already built this stuff for us, and we were in this room, <laughs> and they were going to be really upset. He wasn't really upset about his parents. Um, he kind of grown up around that, and there was not a whole lot of um, judgment from that end. Uh, not that that's wrong, but I think he could have used a little bit more direction from home. So my dad was a man that Chris did not ever want to disappoint, even though he did a few times. Um, but he was always coming back and asking, you know, for, I'm sorry for what I did. I know I shouldn't have done that. I know better. And uh, it was kind of that situation. So we get in the BCM. Um, Lance approves us. 
We go in there and it's actually cheaper. The rent's cheaper than it was in the dorm. Um, all we have to do is set up for events. I eventually started leading the music there and it turned into a really good deal. But during the time, I could have walked away from Chris and not said anything to him for I don't know how long and probably would have been fine. I was, I'm saying this in a really calm way because this was 10 years ago. But uh, in the moment, I was really upset with Chris. It had been really easy. I mean, he just kind of wrecked the one good thing I had going at Easter was a room with its own bathroom. And he'd, <laughs> he'd wrecked that. So I was, you know, I was mad. And the way we react to that forgiveness, if he had not came to me and explained to me how broken he was and how sorry he was, I mean, he was in tears. Because, I mean, he was getting judged for everybody at school. The people that, he, that had put him in a leadership position and trusted him to be there, he'd earned their trust the year before. And now he broke it all in one night. So he's feeling pretty broken. And I got to talk to him through that. We got to pray through that. Um, we got to live in a place where we had Lance there with us as kind of a counselor mentor for both of us. And it turned into a really good situation, but it might not have if I hadn't been willing to um, forgive Chris and walk with him through that. Not that I wasn't leery of him anymore. Every time that he wanted to go hang out with some people, I kind of knew in my mind the way it was going to go. Um, I always had that. And uh, even, even still today, we're both almost 30 years old, and I don't fully trust, he's made some other decisions throughout my life, I don't fully trust my life in Chris's hands all the time. He's a good guy, but he doesn't think stuff through a lot. So I've, I've thought a lot on this term, forgive and forget. Everyone knows it. And nowhere in Scripture, and I have Google to affirm this, nowhere in Scripture is, does it ever say forgive and forget. And that kind of threw me off, because that's what you always hear, forgive and forget. And we kind of get that from God wiping away our sins, and it's like they never happen. That's, that's where we kind of get that. God forgets our sins. We know that God knows everything. He really doesn't forget it, but it's like He did. When He forgives us, all that goes away because He's already paid the price for us. So um, the forgive part can come without forgetting, and it's going to. We're not going to forget that stuff. So I know this is hard to talk about, but we're going to talk about forgiveness today, and we're going to look at a scripture about forgiveness. So a few of my movies I mentioned, my favorite movies, I mentioned Wednesday Night to the Kids, um, were Rocky, all of them, Rambo, all of them, um, Pale Rider, Clint Eastwood movie, where you know, he comes into town, he's a preacher, he's not like any preacher you've ever known before, he like, shoots people, <laughs> kind of a good movie, <laughs> but uh, I hope you don't know any preachers like that. But these movies are really good, like Taken, you guys seen Taken, it's one of my favorites too, I didn't even say this one Wednesday night. There's a story where there's some major brokenness, some hurt. Someone dies or gets hurt or some tra tragedy happens. And then someone comes and takes care of it, wipes the people out that did it. And that's we were drawn to that stuff, the underdog stories. That's, a lot of times that's why we come to church, because we know how the outcome is going to be. If we're on Jesus' side, he's going to wipe out all the evil and we're going to be with him. And you kinda, it's not an underdog story because it's God. But Jesus coming and humbling himself, it kind of feels that way sometimes. Like evil's so prevalent in the world, but if you cling to God, everything's going to be right. And it's really easy just to get in that mindset and stay there. And forget the grace part. They get what they deserve, burn them all, right? And the, we watch those movies, those shoot-em-ups and stuff, and that's what it is. And it makes us feel good because the, the guy that got hurt, the guy that lost everything, comes out on top. And we know in Scripture that eventually that's the way it'll be. But in this life right now, that's not always going to be the case. Sometimes there's going to be pain that we can't take away. There's going to be things that we can't just go out and wipe everybody out. Or if we did, there's going to be a lot more consequences for it. So as we're thinking on that, thinking on forgiveness, I want you guys to think about a time in your life where you needed to forgive somebody or someone needed to forgive you. You've done something wrong 
and you really needed their forgiveness to make that relationship whole again. And maybe they wouldn't give it to you. Or maybe you wouldn't give it to them. And uh, I'm reading a book right now, slowly. I've been reading it for like a month and a half. I'm on chapter 6 or something. Um, it's actually in y'all's garage right now. I forgot it last Wednesday. Um, but I'm going to eventually finish it. It's called Grace is Greater. And I took it from back there behind um, where Crystal's sitting at. It was a box. It was a study that Scott had done um, back at the beginning of the school year, I think. And I'm reading it. And it says in there that when we don't forgive, it's like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. And that kind of stuck with me because that's exactly what we're doing. A lot of times we punish ourselves for the actions that someone else did that really doesn't have anything to do with us. Even if it hurt us, the action that they did that we're holding against them really had nothing to do with us. We didn't make that action for them. We didn't decide to do that. We didn't lead them to do that. So we beat ourselves up and we live with all this pain because of something someone else did. And it's kind of silly when you, when you break it down like that and you're punishing yourself for the hurt that someone else has caused you. Um, so think about that as we go to Matthew chapter 18, verse 21 through 35. I think Crystal's going to put it up there. This is going to be the NIV version. This is ESV, so it's going to be a little bit different. I think I mentioned that last time, and I still did not fix that on the computer. But uh, a few little things in this passage kind of stick out, and we're going to read the whole thing, and then uh, we'll kind of break it down. So starting in verse 21, Matthew chapter 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant. This may be familiar to some of you guys, and... Uh, if it's not, um, or you've heard it several times, maybe we'll find some stuff in it today that you didn't catch. So, Peter came up and said to him, he's talking to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. So stop there a second. In the Jewish culture, I kind of looked this up and I think this is accurate from what I've determined. Um, the kind of the norm for that time period is if someone wronged you, they got three chances. Kind of like baseball. <laughs> Way before baseball though. So if anyone forgave someone more than three times, they're really just doing it out of the kindness of their heart. There was no law against not forgiving someone after they had wronged you three times. So when Peter says seven times to Jesus, he's kind of feeling like he's the man. Like, Jesus is impressed right now. Like, if I forgive him seven times, is that good? He's like, this is like almost double what normal people do. Jesus is going to be really impressed with me. Um, and Jesus answers him in a way that Peter probably didn't see coming. He probably wanted Jesus to say something like, yeah, seven's a great number. That's a lot. Jesus says, um, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. So Peter's probably like, what? That's way, I can't even count. I, that'd be, that, over a long time period, that's a lot of times that people could wrong me. And Jesus really isn't saying 77. Say seven times seven. Um, what he's getting at is as many times as it takes. As many times as they wrong you, forgive them. Because forgiveness um, doesn't only affect the person you're forgiving, but also completes you. It restores that relationship with you. Even if the relationship's still rocky, when you release yourself and turn that, that hurt over to God and live free of that, it does just as much good for you as it does the person that you're forgiving. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. A talent, I looked up, is a unit of measurement given to slaves that equals 20 years of labor. So these slaves only work a few talents in their lifetime. I don't know what this guy had borrowed or what he had done, but to owe someone 10,000 talents would be 200,000 years approximately of work, of, of free labor. No one's going to live that long, right? So he owes a debt that he can never repay. Even if he goes to, to prison for life, 
he still he hasn't even paid off a fraction of the debt that he owes. So he owes 200,000 years, 10,000 talents of work. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children, all that he had, and payment be made. The master was just in this, right? If he had sold this slave that he had that owed him 200,000 years of work, he was justified. He was abiding by the law. He was selling him into slavery, selling his family into slavery, and the debt would be paid back that way. Um, so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me. I will pay you everything. And out of the pity of him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. So 200,000 years of labor is owed to this master, and he's ready to, to sell the whole family, get them all out of here. And the, and the slave falls down before him and says, Have pity on me, forgive me. And the master says, Okay. And that's what God does for us. No matter what wrong we've done in this world, when we come to Him and we ask for that forgiveness and He restores that relationship, all the debt that we owe, no matter how many lifetimes we've accumulated of wrong, it's all forgiven. But the story doesn't stop there. Um, so out of the pity, the master released the servant and forgave him the debt. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. You may not be familiar with the term denarii, but it means one day it's wages, one day of work. So 100 denarii would be 100 days of work. We just had our 100th day of school this past week. The school year has flown by. So it's like August to February, except don't count the weekends. You're counting every day. So even shorter than that. That's what this guy was owed. So very, very small <coughs> fraction of time compared to the 200,000 years that he owed. But let's see what he does. When the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what, he had, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master that it, that it had taken place. So he has some buddies around. They're watching all this, and they, they saw him get forgiven of 200,000 years of debt. Boom, gone. No questions asked. He asked for forgiveness. There it is. And then he goes out. And a guy owes him 100 days of work, and he chokes him, and he throws him in prison. And everybody's going, dude, what? You just got forgiven of a way bigger debt than that. Why are you doing this? So they went, and they told the master. Um, told the master what had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you of all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay off all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Grace flows. Grace has to flow. When God gives us grace, it's not intended for it to, to be stopped there. Um, if we dam it all up inside of us and don't let it flow out to others, we're doing exactly what this story's saying. And this is a story from Christ. And he's comparing that to what God will do to us if we don't forgive. And sometimes forgiveness is really hard. We hear about a lot of things, um, and we have experienced a lot of things that seem unforgivable, um, wrongs that have happened that are even hard to speak about. And we don't really know what to do with that. And I was thinking on this, and I, and I mentioned this Wednesday night to the kids. I'm getting close to wrapping up here. But uh, we see the picture of this. Obviously, this is before Jesus was crucified. But Him on the cross and the mockers at his feet. And it's in Luke 23, 34, somewhere around there. 
Um, Jesus is on the cross. He's about to die. The ones, the crowd that have gathered around him and put him there are mocking him, saying, if you are the Christ, call down your legion of angels. Um, save yourself. If you came to save everybody, save yourself. And they're mocking him. They're saying, he's not God. He can't even save himself. And Jesus has a lot bigger plan. He spent a whole lot of time preparing for this moment. And he's not calling any angels. He's, he's hanging there and he's going to die. And he says something, not to them, but to God. You guys know what he said? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. And that, when you read that and you see the, the, the hurt that he's feeling, the pain that he's feeling, and all that's going on around him, if you guys have ever been mocked or made fun of, uh, especially in school or something, it doesn't feel good. And Jesus was a man too. It did not feel good to him. Hanging there and dying, he suffered the same way any of us would. But he did not yell to them, I forgive you, did he? And I thought that's kind of interesting. Some people wrong us, and they never come ask for forgiveness from us. In this story, the forgiveness is given when it's asked for. Um, no one on, except for the guy hanging by Jesus on the cross that day asked for forgiveness. And when he asked, Jesus said, today you're going to be with me in paradise. And the other guy that didn't, he wasn't. And the crowd, we don't know what happened to them. We don't know if, if Christ dying on that day moved them. We don't know if they saw him after he was resurrected. We don't know what kind of events unfolded after that for them in their lives. But I think it's interesting that Jesus didn't tell them right there that he forgave them. Sometimes forgiveness um, can happen even when that person doesn't want it through God. So when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, he's saying they're not ready for it right now. They don't know what they're doing. They don't understand the wrong that they're doing. And some people are like that. Some people don't understand the wrong that they're doing. They'll do things that hurt you and never, have fully, uh, un never fully understand the ramifications for that, never really understand how you feel. And sometimes that relationship is broken and we never get the chance to talk to them. We just don't want to be around that person anymore. But when we seek God, like Jesus gave us the example of, and ask Him to work in them and forgive them, forgiveness can still be achieved even without that relationship being restored. And when we restore the relationship with Christ, we're, restoring, we're eventually restoring that relationship with people because then He comes into us we can live a life where maybe one day you'll get a chance to forgive that person in person. Maybe not. But God's work is still being done if you turn it over to Him. So that's what I want to leave us with today on the forgiveness um, thing. It's, I know it's hard, and there's things in my life, there's some people um, that I don't know if I've forgiven or not for some things. Um, especially, you know, if you have any kind of family situations that's gone on where it's direct, if you have any kind of friendships that's gone on where it's, there people are directly breaking your trust, um, it can seem impossible to come to a place where you'll live free of the pain that they've caused you. But the only way that you'll be able to is if you turn over to Christ and, and pray that God will forgive them, that God will work in their life. And He may use you for that. He may not. But as long as you're seeking Him in that, that's what He's asked us to do, to forgive. Because if we don't, who will? And if we don't, we're living with the pain that someone else has caused and we're not living free in Christ anymore because now we're tethered down by this thing that has really nothing to do with this. We have no control over, but we let it come in and take over our lives. So as we leave the day, as we're uh, living our weeks, those times where people may drive you crazy at work, or students, you fellow teachers that may drive you crazy at work, um, be patient, be kind. And when people put you down or people hurt you, people bring pain to you or people that you love, Remember what Christ did for you first and all that you've been forgiven for. And that will kind of put it in perspective.
Because if you understand yourself, we heard, we've heard some great stories the past few weeks with Tyler, um, things that Mark has shared. Um, when we understand our own stories and the wrongs that we've done and the things that we've, we've thought or, or done that no one knows about and that God forgives all that, then it puts it in perspective for us to be able to at least meet someone where they're at, to be willing to reach out there and forgive them for what they've done to us. So I'm going to pray, and you guys are dismissed. Um, a couple of announcements before I do. We're selling T-shirts. There's some spread across the chairs. Thank you, Crystal, for that. I think, is there some still back there? There's still some back on the table as you're leaving. But if you want to order a Cornerstone T-shirt, um, we have some baseball-style shirts. There's a men's cut and a women's cut. If you want to order a men's cut and you're a woman, that's fine. It's just like a regular T-shirt. But there is a women's cut on there. And I was explaining to Carol, I'm not trying to get myself in trouble, but the women's cut has a little bigger neck and a little bigger hip area. Um, not that women have bigger hips. If you want a men's t-shirt, you can get a men's t-shirt. But if you want a women's, there is no judgment if you're a woman. Michael, don't order a women's t-shirt. Um, but if you do, I'm going to try to forgive you if you wear it. All right? So let's practice forgiveness. Let's practice love this week for people. And I want to pray we're going to be dismissed. We're not going to sing any songs. I always tell myself, I told mom and dad before, we got, before I got up here, he said, are you nervous? And I said, a little bit, but usually... If I've had time to plan it out, I talk way too long. This time, um, this week kind of rushed by, and I shared some stories, and I still talk kind of long. So I guess the common theme is I can get up here and ramble for a while. <laughs> but I'm going to pray, and uh, you guys are dismissed. Hang out as long as you want to, and hope you have a blessed week. And God, we come today just thanking you for um, the life that you live for us here in this world, God. Send your son to live as one of us, to set an example for us, God. And... Uh, Lord, when we think that we've got it figured out like Peter, and we think that we're going above and beyond to be uh, righteous and good, you will always uh, remind us of how little we are actually doing and how much you've actually done. God, remind us that it's not seven times to forgive someone or three. God, it's uh, as many times as it takes to restore the relationships that are broken. And God, people have wronged us, and they come, and they seek forgiveness, God, and they're, and they're uh, humbling themselves to admitting that they're wrong. Lord, I pray that they would see you in us and that we would be quick to forgive and not quick to judge and punish them for um, what they're asking forgiveness from. And God, I pray the ones that aren't seeking forgiveness, that we would still seek you in those times. And God, I pray that you would do a work in their lives where they could be forgiven for the things that they've done, God, and uh, that you would just work through us in them, God, and through any way you can in them. God, so we could restore the relationship that was broken in the garden so that we could all live um, just in peace with you, God and happiness with you, God, and all the joy comes from you. It's your name we pray. Amen.